That stretch between Cuba and Florida, those waters can come up with tropical storms of 60 to 70 miles an hour winds, unpredicted, within two minutes. Diana Nyad is swimming, stroke by stroke, 30 hours out from a set-off point in Havana, Cuba, and it's dark. You've got boats flying around, crashing into each other. And now she's in bad shape. She's trying to keep calm, keep composed, just keep swimming. Stroke, 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 and then, from nowhere. Tentacles wrapped around my neck, down the forearm. I was in anaphylactic shock. I felt I'd been dipped in hot burning oil. I was screaming out to Bonnie and the shark divers on the boat, help me, help, I'm on fire, help me. I couldn't breathe, but I swam. And swim she did. I'm Rob Pope, and from Red Bull, this is how to be superhuman. In this episode, we're talking to the only person to ever complete the fabled 110-mile swim from Cuba to Florida without a shark cage. The first time Diana and I had attempted this notorious journey was back in 1978. She was just 29 and it ended in failure. It would be 30 years before she entered those waters again, determined to complete the challenge she had set herself all that time ago. But nothing comes easy in the world of endurance swimming. Diana tried and failed to reach Florida three more times, until finally, in 2013, she clapped eyes upon the bright lights of Key West, the southernmost point of Florida, knowing she was a mere 15 hours from land. But what prepared her for such a treacherous journey? How did she summon the will to take on the deadly box jellyfish? Why did her faithful head trainer, Bonnie, stick with her through five arduous attempts? First, though, why did this Olympic hopeful put away her competitive dreams to focus on this one near-impossible challenge? I grew up down in southern Florida. In 1959, I was nine years old. I was a little swimmer. And as you mentioned, I, I didn't become an Olympian. I was a pretty good little sprinter, you know, the best in the state of Florida in my events. But I stood on the beach with my French mother right after the Cuban Revolution happened, 1959. Literally, Overnight, thousands of Cubans flooded into my hometown. We were eating Cuban food. We were flying the Cuban flag. We were dancing salsa in their backyards. We had a buzzing mystique about that forbidden island off the shores. So I was a little pool swimmer, but somewhere fluttering in the back of the imagination when I stood there with my mom and I said, Mom, where's Cuba? I know it's out there. I can't see it. Where's that beautiful island of Cuba? She said, well, it's over this way. No, you must lift your arm over this way. There. The horizon is just there. As a matter of fact, you, you little champion swimmer, you, you could almost swim there. In case people don't know, you look Nyad up in the dictionary, it says definition number one, the nymphs that swam in Greek mythology to protect 
the waters, the fountains, the lakes, the oceans for the gods. And definition number two was girl or woman champion swimmer. Now, one of the things you did do, which would have got you instant YouTube fame these days, is I believe your maverick spirit led you whilst at university to jump out of a fourth floor window wearing a parachute. Now, what a viral video that would have been. That wasn't how you achieved fame. What you did was decide to swim around Manhattan in a 1970s, probably polluted as sin, Hudson River. And you did this quicker than some people will actually complete a marathon on foot. Tell me about that swim. I was 25 years old and I was swimming around the world. You know, there's a marathon swimming circuit and it exists to this day. It existed for decades before I was part of it. And so, you know, pretty much we could say the earth is seven eighths water. We call it a blue jewel of a planet. And these marathon swimmers would go from Japan to Thailand to Italy, Argentina. And I did that. I did that for a decade, which was the 1960s. 70s. Well, I came back from the summer of doing a bunch of those swims. And one of my graduate school colleagues said to me, why in the world are you swimming in some of these very remote places? Nobody knows about what you're doing. You live on the most famous island on the planet, Manhattan. Why don't you swim around Manhattan? And uh, that was a glorious day. It was sunshine. It was October 6th, 1975. A lot of people took off work. They were down around the, the battery when I came around the area that you passed by the Statue of Liberty. And when I went under that bridge... People were screaming, tugboats were, were honking. The, uh, the captain I had had told me he had a vet appointment in the late afternoon that I had to finish by five o'clock. So I kept coming over to the side of the boat for my little drink feedings every now and then. And I'd say, oh, Ed, I'm so sorry. I don't think I'm going to make it by five. He said, the vet appointment? This is the most exciting day of my life. The New York Times was just on my boat interviewing me. You take all day. I don't care how long you take. And it was seven hours, 57 minutes. I have to say, when you think of the other swims that are out there and the other swims I and other people have done, it wasn't that hard a day. So it did actually get you a, a great degree of fame. You know, Saturday Night Live, Johnny Carson, you know, sort of, you basically were an overnight celebrity, but fame was never your dream. Your dream was to swim from Cuba to the United States. And so how did you go from the Manhattan moment to say, it's time? Was, w w did you know as you were finishing that swim, it's time for Cuba? That was midway. 1975 was midway through that marathon circuit career. And um, you build a lot of character. You see the world. You make friends for life. But always in the back of my mind, it was, well, this is all great. But none of them fired me deep down. None of them had gripped my soul. And in 1978, I thought, I, I'm not going to do this forever. I'm going to retire at some point. So I'm going to start researching that Cuba swim. And then I tried it first in 1978, 41 hours and 49 minutes. It's a vast wilderness out there. There's a lot of danger. There's a lot of uncertainty, a lot of unpredictability. And they call it the Mount Everest of the Earth's oceans because it is the toughest swim on the planet. So the summer of 1978, day one, hour one, minute one, you got yourself this far. What was going through your head as you, you step into a shark cage? That for me is the moment where I start to think, hang on, I might be getting in a little bit over my head here. 
getting into the shark cage wasn't, you know, intimidating that way. I always felt this reserve as though I know that an asterisk goes next to your name. Uh, I, I went into that cage with a lot of, oh, if I make this thing and I'm the first person to ever do it in all of history, I don't want an asterisk next to my name. So honestly, now I was heartbroken at the moment, but now I'm glad I didn't make it so that I could make it what you might call the up and up way without a cage. I know you don't believe in destiny, but destiny believed in you not finishing that swim. So it tossed you around like a rag doll in that shark cage for like a good yeah, 40 it hours. Was. It was rough. But then for 30 years, was the dream shelved? Did, did you did you fall out of love with swimming? No, no. Uh, I, I, it was just time. It was time for me to make a living. Um, I was poor. And I, I was ready. I was ready to become a broadcaster, live a different life. And I left the Cuba swim behind with a little bit of heartache, but it grew. As I was 59, coming up to turning 60, my mom died. Um, I met Christopher Reeve, whom, if you remember, became a quadriplegic. Um, and, you know, he became a friend of mine. And Chris would say to me, you have no idea what banana peel you may slip on tonight. Go chase every dream you've got. Don't put it off. And that's when it started uh, just gelling in my brain. You're a spectator now. You're not a doer. Go chase your big dreams. What's your biggest dream? It was that holy grail, that Cuba swim that was hanging somewhere in the back of my mind. So it, it started to come together in that summer of 2009 before turning 60. I just thought, this is it. This is it. This is what's going to make me feel alert and alive and awake like nothing else that I could possibly, you know, venture. This phrase, I'm sure you'll, you'll, you'll know what I'm saying. I will sort of translate it for our, for our not, non sort of uh, francophiles. But si seulement le jeune le savait, et que le personnage pouvait encore le faire. Which means, if only the young knew and the elderly could still do. Were you worried that you could still do it? No, it, it never occurred to me. You know, never once did it cross my mind, oh, I'm, you know, I'm not as young. I'm not as agile, uh, you know, as I used to be. I mean, you got to get real. You're not the same body at 60 as you are as 20. Um, and on the other hand, um, and I'm sure you know this from your, your immersion as a distance runner, um, there are certain qualities to being an endurance athlete that actually improve, that actually you, you, you are better at as you get older. You have perspective. You have an awe. You're shallow when you're younger. You know, it's all about you, you, you. As you grow older, you widen out and the power of that perspective, the power of that awe of the blue jewel of, the, of a planet brings a host of, uh, of strength to you as an athlete. Uh, I actually think by far I was a much better athlete in every way, physically, emotionally, mentally, at the age of 64 when I finally did the Cuba swim than at 28 when I first tried it. Well, with that wealth of experience behind you, like how did the preparations for your first and second swims differ? You know, it, they did quite a bit. Number one, I used to swim every day when back in the seventies, never took a day off. Rarely, rarely. If the, you know, maybe if a shoulder was bothering me, you know, give it a break for a day. But I used to go out all the time. Like I do eight hours, just do eight hours every day, every day, every day, every day. Years later, I decided to do it differently. I decided to build up in the beginning of the year. And then once I was in pretty good shape, I decided to go every other day and do much longer swims. So I do a 14 hour swim. 
And then I take the next day off, get myself back together, gain the weight back, uh, get the shoulders back, ice them down. Then I do a 15 hour swim. So I would build up doing these much longer swims, but take a 24 hour rest day. So the decision to never ever do 13 hours and 58 minutes. If you started out on a 14 hour swim, who cares? Nobody's down there in St. Martin with me except Bonnie and my crew. If I say I'm going to do 14 hours, who's going to come and say, oh, I, I cheated. I only did 13 hours and 58 minutes. It's a training swim. But never, if I was coming into the dock at 13 hours, 58 minutes, Bonnie would blow the whistle, say, uh, 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 I know you, I know you, you're going to want the two minutes turn around, even though you're bone tired, you're whipped. And I would, I'd say, you're right. I want 14. I'd go out a minute, back a minute. So a lot of it is the process of how strong is your mind? How deep is your will? You know, as much as it is getting across the thing. I feel you there. I feel you there because I, I, I had a similar occasion when I was running through Texas and uh, I took a bit of a wrong turn. I went seven miles in one direction and when uh, Nadine, my, my long-suffering girlfriend at the time, and, and now my wife, that's the first time I've been able to say that, uh, she, came, she came and visited me and said, right, okay, let's just go from where you would have finished when we met up. And I was like, no, no, we've got to go back to where I went wrong because if I'm going to say I've run across America... I can't say I've run across America and left a seven-mile gap, even though I've run those seven miles just because it doesn't fit with me. I think you need to set these rules and stick with them. And so There you go. And con- congratulations, by the way, on your marriage. That's wonderful. Thank you very much. Cheers. Uh, now, you had all this preparation. You had a very sort of, you know, expertly and expensively assembled team. And you're waiting. You're waiting for the moment to go in Key West. But the swim didn't happen to start with. Why was that? I mean, how many people, Annapurna, K2, uh, Everest, you know, all the big peaks in the world, how many people have come back time after time after time because 100 mile an hour winds have just told them it's not my day? And that's what happened to Diana on a second attempt to complete the swim. That stretch between Cuba and Florida, those waters can come up with tropical storms of 60 to 70 miles an hour winds, unpredicted, within two minutes. She was blown off course and decided to end her attempt after 29 hours in the sea. But Diana wasn't giving up. She went back a third time. And it was on that third attempt, in water, black as the night, that she came face to face with her most powerful enemy yet. Tentacles wrapped around my neck, down the forearm, around the biceps. I was in anaphylactic shock. I felt I'd been dipped in hot burning oil. I was screaming out to Bonnie and the shark divers on the boat. She was screaming because she'd just been stung multiple times by a box jellyfish. Help me, I'm on fire, help me, I couldn't breathe. Now, the box jellyfish is one of the most dangerous creatures in the whole world. The box jellyfish emits the most potent venom on planet Earth. When you're stung with that thing, 98% of people who have ever been touched by a tentacle of the box have died instantaneously. So Diana gets stung. 
What does she do? I swam another 17 hours after that sting. I don't know why. I don't know why I survived. The doctors can't explain it. And maybe it was just pure will. But it turns out it's more than just pure will. A box jellyfish sting is so powerful it would stop most normal people in their tracks. So I wanted to know how the hell she kept going. How did she resist the severe pain shooting through her body? Can you talk about your personal ability to withstand pain and how that helped you on your third swim where the jellyfish situation got very, very real? You know, it's funny. I think that a pain, you know, comes down to a a situational experience. So I don't think that a person who resists pain when they're going up Everest and their lungs are on fire with the, with the lack of oxygen is necessarily that tough in every single situation in their lives. Someone who plays football has got to be pretty darn tough. They're crashing into each other. Some people say an American football game for the linemen is like having 35 car collisions in every single game. But that doesn't mean that that guy is like that in his family life or in, you know, in the rest of his life, I went to get a tattoo. Bonnie and I, after we didn't make it the fourth time, we went to get tattoos that read in Japanese, Ishin Denshin, which means one heart, one mind. We're in this together. We, we barely need to talk. We know what we need to do. I cried. There were teenagers getting tattoos, laughing, and uh, I was crying, biting a towel. The pain was, was, was rugged for me. And they kept saying, you, aren't you the one who just survived the box jellyfish days? What do you mean? So uh, it's not that I'm just this universally pain tolerant person. And, uh, I just, when I was out there, that, that resolve that I imprinted on myself before even the training started. I just, I just said to myself, no matter what comes your way, no matter what pain, what failure, what bad news you get while you're out there, whether it's training or whether it's the real swim itself, you just lift that left arm up again and you lift that right arm up again and you don't give into it. So it's, it's the mind that withstood those box jellyfish stings. And it's the mind that meant even after she had just almost died, all she was thinking about was coming back. Bonnie is my best friend and my head handler. And, um, you know, she she was right there with the medical team and the triage over that box jellyfish stings. And she will tell you that once I was finally pulled from the water, uh, which uh, I can't remember that one. I think it was 48 hours in. I'm pretty sure that was it. Um, I was too weak. I was going off course. I just, they had drained me. I, they didn't kill me, but they debilitated me for sure. So I was going slowly. The Gulf Stream was yanking me over to the east. Uh, we all had a powwow. Um, I swore a few times and said that that's not what the sport's about. The freaking box jellyfish. I trained for this thing. We've got the world-class team with us. Uh, but uh, the box jellyfish did bring us down on that one. And once I got pulled on deck, you know, the whole crew is whipped. It's, it's tough out there. Everybody's working hard. You're solving crises every hour. There's another crisis to solve. And so they're all strewn around the deck and I'm like half conscious and Bonnie's sitting with a blanket around her, just looking glassy eyed. And we're taking the long, long slugging boat ride back to Key West. I think it was 12 or 13 hours 
hours on that boat. And I turned to Bonnie and I said, Bonnie, you know what we got to do now, don't you? She said, what? I said, we got to get some research going on these box jellyfish. We got to figure out what, what, what they are, how to get through them with these creatures are taking my dream down. And she said, for God's sake, we just worked for a year. We just spent 48 hours in trauma out at sea. Can you give us a lousy 24 hours to be proud of ourselves and to rest up a little bit? Then we'll get into whatever it is you want to get into. And I said, Okay. But do you think maybe we could just take 12 hours to be proud of ourselves and get into the box jellyfish? So yeah, no, I was in a state of immediately, even in failure, I was always in a state of how can we learn? What did we learn? What can we do better? How can we put it together again? Let's go. Having seen the videos, I would be trying to come up with some sort of perspex box because it did not look pleasant. Any swimmer who has survived the box jellyfish and lived to tell the story afterwards has said they will never, ever go back in those particular waters again. And that gets back to your willingness to get back up once you're knocked down. So when I was stung by those box jellyfish, I went out and found the world's renowned expert in the box jellyfish, Dr. Angel Yanagihara, University of Hawaii, and started learning how they operate, what their behaviors are, where they are. Eight to 11 days after the full moon, they come up and they swarm. I didn't know that before. So we we became armed with a whole new learning curve of science from Dr. Yanagihara. And I thought, I need a suit of armor. I need something that's allowed in the sport of marathon swimming. And I worked with a prosthetist to make a silicone mask. It was tough as hell to swim with. You know, you, you need your face. You need your bare face to use your mouth to grab sips of oxygen, especially in a rough sea. And I had this mask on that had a very slim slit in it, in a very, very dead calm. It was okay. Even then it wasn't easy. But in a rough sea, as I had the first night, I was getting slammed with walls of seawater. I was vomiting into the mask, but I wouldn't have gone back a fifth time without it. So, you know, what do they say? Uh, Necessity is the mother of invention. I wanted to get across that body of water and I wasn't going to let even the deadly box jellyfish stop me. I really like the way that you've you've spoken so much about this being a team effort. You know, obviously you're the person out front, the person who ultimately has to do or, as could have been the case, die. Uh, But you're almost like the Formula One driver, you know, sort of, and without the guys changing his tyres and, you know, working on everything behind the scenes, the the attempt was doomed and you come back on a fourth attempt and, you know, as Bonnie was sort of intimating, it's starting to sound a bit like an obsession now, but this was a dream and that's what obsessions are, you know, so you were always going to come back. But the one thing is, fourth time lucky, and I, I hate to use this word, maybe it's because I'm not eloquent enough to think of something else, but, you know, the fourth attempt eventually ends in a heroic failure. And so, again, you're at the mercy of Mother Nature, you know, once again, who threw everything she had at you, I believe, this time, you know, and not just you, but also your crew. Yeah, the fourth attempt was weather. You know, it's it's a confluence of a lot of air currents and water currents. Uh, you literally are affected by 
the winds coming all the way from the Sahara Desert, 6,000 miles across the Atlantic Ocean. When the winds blow from the east, and uh, you can actually taste the granules of sand from the Sahara Desert. In in the Keys and in Cuba, they call it the Sahara Dust. You can literally taste it if the winds are coming too strong day after day from the east. Well, the Gulf Stream, if you can picture the map, is flowing due east up against those winds, and and you get stiff, stiff, tall peaks out there, which are you know far from ideal for a swimmer. You have the Atlantic Gyre. You've got the Galapagos currents that are coming up. You have the, the actual jet stream of air going across North America that make a high pressure level that affect the waters down there. So you get a forecast. You've got your whole team. You've got 44 people sequestered in Key West. Everybody's in shape. Everybody's got, you know, the storm protocol, the shark protocol, the jellyfish protocol. We are a, a prepared, smart team ready to go. We get a forecast. We had three different, uh, you know, scientific entities, NOAA and, uh, uh, the the Miami Hurricane Center and another up in Washington D.C. They give their different profiles of what the weather is going to be seventy two hours out, forty eight hours out, and we decide. We sit down and decide. Well, the Gulf Stream axis is terrible. It's flowing hard to the east, but the weather looks good, or the opposite, or both look pretty good. But in twenty four hours, its chances are it's going to change, and a swimmer needs a good three days to try to make it across. So you get this forecast, but it's a crapshoot. And then you get over there. That's what happened in 1978. And it happened again in 2012, the fourth attempt. We got a pretty good forecast. We're getting too close to the end of September, October, when the waters turn colder. And at least for me, not ideal. So we decide what the heck, you know, it looks pretty good. It's 80%. It's going to hold. And then it doesn't hold. It falls apart and you're out there in an eight foot sea. The shark divers can't see fins. I can't see the boat. You're getting yanked off course. You're, you're sick to your stomach with the sea. And that, that 2012 wound up in a very big sea, bigger than eight foot waves. And pretty soon you're, you're not going to make it to the other shore. You do what the Everest climber does. And you say, let's pack it up. We'll come back next year. And so back she went. Another time. A fifth time. And now things were going well for a change. A team of scientists had created cutting-edge jellyfish protection for her. The weather was perfect. The current was even driving her towards Cuba. But still, things weren't easy. I forgot who I was. I forgot what I was doing. I had lost a lot of weight and energy the night before, vomiting into the mask. And she was cold, chilled to the bone, shivering. And all of a sudden, Bonnie calls her over and says, Stop. What do you see across there? So Diana looks, and she can't see much, if truth be told. The salt water is clogging her eyes. Her vision is so limited... She can't even make out Bonnie's face. And I, I saw a little thin white line, even though my vision was very poor at that point. Um, so I thought the sun was coming up for the third day, and that gave me some optimism. I thought the sun's going to warm, the rays are going to warm my body. You always feel hope with the sun. But then she sees Bonnie. Bonnie's crying. And she said, that's not the sun. That's better than the sun. Those are the lights of Key West. 
Key West, the final destination. The Florida shore was in sight. Having that vision in my brain, we all went back to work, we're professionals, we went back to you know the shark divers, the navigator, everybody went back to their jobs, including me. But now we had something to press for. Hope was alive when Bonnie said, those are the lights of Key West. The only problem was that there was still 15 hours to go. Those last 15 hours, at this point, you were mentally shot. I believe you'd th- you thought you'd swam past the Taj Mahal earlier in the swim, uh, and you must have been physically beat. What was the actual swimming like at this point? Was it resembling anything like swimming? What was going through your mind? You're just back to work. So those last 15 hours, all the way until I was in one foot of water, and could stand and walk. You know, you got your sea legs, so you're pretty wobbly. But even ha- half mile offshore, forget about 15 hours out, anything could happen. Anything. You could be run over by a jet ski. A shark still could come get you. A jellyfish, even Portuguese man of war, maybe not the box jellyfish, could still, in your debilitated state, take you down. So once she said, those are the lights of Key West, I just put my head down. I had a playlist of 85 songs in my head. And you're not allowed headphones. It's part of the sport that you've got to use your own willpower, your own focus, and your brain not be entertained, you know, by music running through from headphones. So I used to sing uh, in order to count time and to pass time. You know, you're very accurate out there. You've got this metronomic stroke. Uh, and if you, if I would take a song like Roy Orbison's Blue Bayou, I love that song. It sort of matches the cadence of my stroke. If I would sing it all the way through exactly the way Roy Orbison recorded it 200 times, when I got to the 200th time, I would be at exactly exactly nine hours. So I'm out there, left stroke, right stroke, singing, would I see my baby again, spend some time with some of my friends, da 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 on Blue Bayou. So I'm out there singing, I'm engaged. I hear the magic of Roy Orbison's voice, the prettiest voice ever recorded, wafting through my brain, but it's just in my imagination. Spend some time with some of my friends on Blue Bayou. And when I get to 200 bayous, I'm at nine hours and, and I'm passing the time and I'm counting time. I can look up to Bonnie and say, I bet you anything we're at exactly nine hours. Am I right? She would say, oh my God, we're at exactly nine hours. That's just amazing. That's what I did for those last 15 hours. They weren't any different than any of the other hours I swam until I could see the whites of the eyes of the people standing on shore and I could stand up in a foot of water and take my own last steps. And those steps, when you're actually feeling like sort of solid land underneath your feet, how did that feel? You know, honestly, um, 
yes, I remember the triumph of it. I remember it because it was all so hard to do and it took so long. And this team was so devoted. Not one person on this team through all the years ever got paid a dime. They were in it for the friendship. They were in it for the, uh, the, the fact that we were chasing history. Uh, they were in it for the grand adventure of it. Not one dime did anyone get paid. So I remember it all because we were, we were such a, um, passionate, devoted team. We just would not give up on what everybody else said could never be done. But that last moment on the beach with the people screaming, it was a big scene, um, helicopters flying all above. Yes, it was a triumph, but for me, there was this deep, deep satisfaction, like I've been speaking about before, that I decided to not be afraid of failure, I decided to discover who I am and everybody on my team had to do the same. And I was so proud of chasing something that big and so relieved that I'd never be doing a 14 hour training swim again. So, uh, you know, I do remember it, but it's more in what the swim taught me for my life than the actual like, Hey, here I am. And I'm the big cheese. And I did it. What an incredible story. You know, but Diana's been continuing her great work on this planet by starting the Everwalk Initiative with Bonnie, aiming to get the world moving and releasing their inner never-say-die attitude. You should check it out online. We wish you all the best. On next week's episode, I'll be chatting to the fantastic adventurer Molly Hughes, who became the youngest woman to scale Everest via both the North and South faces. I was feeling pretty weak, but then I guess I started to feel really, really ill. And I remember, like, tapping Lapper on the shoulder, and he checks the gauge on the canvas of my rucksack, and I remember just seeing this kind of panic flick across his face. Please remember to subscribe and leave a review if you're enjoying the podcast. And also, get in touch with us on social media using the hashtag RedBull how to be superhuman to share tales of your own superhuman feats or you can even suggest other people we should talk to with incredible stories we'd love to hear from you how to be superhuman is a something else production for red bull media house <laughs>